Alright, so we're going to continue our study of the life of George Mueller. Just got a few chapters left in the book here. Uh, and then we'll probably go back to um, what we did with Matthew maybe about a year ago, which was read through the book a chapter at a time. We won't redo Matthew, but probably a different uh, book. And uh, I think that will be a helpful way to approach uh, Sunday School for a bit. So that's my plan at the moment for what we'll do next. Um, and then I think I mentioned to you today is the last day for Isaiah in the morning service. So we're going to kind of do a summary working through that. And then we will um, start into First Peter the following week. Anyway, Autobiography of Mueller, Chapter 21. First thing we want to look at here, the poorest person, without influence, without friends, without expense, no matter where he lives or which denomination he is affiliated with, may be admitted to the orphanage. So my question is, what do you think of this policy? My reason for asking this is, when it comes to Christian organizations, there's been a variety of approaches to sort of the policy for admitting people, whether it be... Um, a Christian school or camp or different things like that and often there's been some sort of requirement that you have to maybe agree to a statement of faith or at the very minimum uh, profess that you are a Christian what are pros and cons of that sort of policy versus Mueller's policy of admitting children to the orphanage and maybe some of his reasons for that some of that kind of idea any any thoughts on those sorts of ideas Yeah. So, in this case, they're serving these individuals. And I think about uh, like MediShare or Samaritan Ministries. You know, they ask that you be a Christian, but you don't have to belong to any one denomination. And they're not they're not a spiritual representation of any sort. Whereas, if you have like a school and you're hiring teachers, there should probably be higher requirements of the impact that they're going to have and because they are representatives. Well, he had specific requirements for the teachers, just not for the students, if you will, or the orphans. Yeah, I'm just saying there's, right. there's the difference between participating and being part of the leadership. Well, the yeah, I mean, when it comes to a Christian school, there's a possibility of, um, you know, one approach to Christian schools is you have to be a professing Christian to attend at all. Another is if you get into like junior high age, you have to be a professing Christian. And then some would say you even have to agree to a specific doctrinal statement and like wholeheartedly kind of a thing. So just kind of thinking through those sorts of things, why does Mueller have this approach to his organization versus some of the other approaches that we might see? Any further thoughts on that? What's the advantage of having kind of an open door policy for orphans? Uh, Rob? You can help more people. Okay, help more people. Retta? It, it, it appears that his, his total goal of taking anyone is that they'll be under godly teaching. So in the time they're there, and, and I think he's looking to win souls. Sure. Yeah, so it really comes down to whether your goal is more of an evangelistic or a additional training for people who are already believers kind of 
kind of a thing. So I think some of the questions when it comes to something like a Christian school we tend to start thinking about are if we let in all the people with all the problems it's going to make problems for us, right? And his focus was not so much on that kind of idea but more on the idea of here are people who don't know Jesus at all, here's an opportunity for basic needs to be met and for them to hear the gospel and further teaching and training about God. I don't know that there's a right or wrong solution to this in every instance. Um, it takes a special sort of teacher, overseer, etc. to minister to people that you know are going to have severe challenges of various kinds, right? And so if you have people who are planning to, like they just want to show up and teach something, it's a whole different level of commitment to say, you're going to teach and you're going to have to basically be a parent to these uh, students who are have either in this case no parents or in the case of some other situations really terrible home lives there's going to be all sorts of complications with anger with uh, drug issues with all these other sorts of things are the sort of things that we would potentially have to contemplate today I think that we should be more willing on the side of saying this is a part of the messiness of life in a sin-cursed world but I do very much understand the hesitation because it's one thing to say um, somebody came in and they were kind of dirty and they wrecked my furniture. It's another thing to say this person could be a severe threat to my family or to other people that I care about, but I'm still going to minister to that person anyway. Like I'm just trying to help us think through what stands behind a policy like this, what are some of the downstream effects of it, and just our... Our focus on life being safe and comfortable and tidy, whatever that looks like for us, severely constrains our opportunities for ministry. Jonathan? Okay. Yeah. But with a little bit of patience, you know, you could work with them. Sure. Now, we had a really good environment, and that helped a lot. You know, we had understandings that we you know, might get in trouble if they asked about food. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just, again, I don't know if there's one right answer, but it's just one of these things I think we need to think about because sometimes we just assume not even assume, we just do things without even thinking about them at all, right? Never even crosses our mind that there could be another way to do it. And so when we look at something like Mueller's example, I think it's a good opportunity for us to say, why did he do it that way? How does that compare to what we do? All of those sorts of things. The next thing here is this anticipation of um, building a larger orphan house. He said, if 700 more young souls could be brought under regular godly training, what blessed service that would be for the kingdom of Christ. At the time, he had somewhere 3 to 350. So he's talking about more than doubling what he had. I began this work to show the world and the church that God in heaven hears and answers prayer. This is better accomplished the larger the work is, provided I obtain the means simply through prayer and faith. So how does Mueller's motivation or approach here differ from the typical person who is planning to enlarge some ministry or business that he oversees? 
Yes, Mary. Okay. All right. So how we raise the money is could potentially be different. How, what else? What are some other differences as to what what's his goal? What's his approach? How's that similar or different to what we see people doing today in certain things, Jonathan? Yeah, so he is, his view of numbers was not more people so I can have more bragging rights, hey, look at the size of my thing. It was more numbers so I can have an impact on more people, right? So that's part of it. And then the other thing you were saying... Um, yeah. Right. Yeah, so that God would get credit for it, okay? Yeah, but it's not the first thing we think about necessarily. Okay, good. Any other thoughts on this? How does his approach similar to or different from what we might see with other things even today? Norma? Okay. Good works with the goal of storing up treasure in heaven, you're saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. Okay. Why was it wise for Mueller to consider wrong reasons that he might have had for wanting to expand the work? How can we learn from his example as we anticipate similar decisions about changes in our lives? So, I'll just give you a couple of these here uh, in case you need a refresher here. Um, Here are some obstacles. I have an abundance of work. My wife is also very busy. Am I taking on too much for my bodily strength and my mental powers by thinking about another orphan house? Am I going beyond the measure of my faith in thinking about enlarging the work? Is this a delusion of Satan, an attempt to cast me down from my place of usefulness by making me go beyond my capabilities? Is it a snare to puff me up in pride by attempting to build a large orphan house? I can only pray the Lord would not allow Satan to gain an advantage over me. By the grace of God, my heart says, Lord, if I could be sure that it is your will I go forward in this matter, I would do so cheerfully. On the other hand, if I could be sure these are vain, foolish, proud thoughts and are not from you, I would forget the whole idea. My hope is in God. He will help me and teach me. Based on his former dealings with me, however, it would not be surprising if he called me to enlarge work in this way. Lord, please teach me your will in this matter. Why is it helpful to consider temptation or overextending ourselves in the context of a decision like this? Jonathan? Okay. Okay. Yeah, we don't want to put ourselves in a position where mm, there was that 
faith healer guy that was kind of like, God's going to strike me dead if you don't give me a million bucks. This was, I don't know, a long time ago, maybe back in the 80s. Um, obviously, that's a problem to get to that sort of manipulation to try to get people to give to a work. and calls into question the reality of whether the work needed to happen in the first place, right? Um, I think this is another important difference we should recognize. There's a difference between God providing money for a place that has a shoestring budget that is very directly involved in ministry and manipulating people into giving large amounts of money to build gigantic buildings that may be used for ministry, ministry but are not directly, like the, the, the connection is less clear. Like, so for the orphan house, how much would the orphan house be used? in a given week for the orphans. The whole week, right? And if we say, well, we want to build a camping conference center and it's going to cost a million dollars and we're going to use it three times a year, that's a completely different scenario, right? It's much more disconnected from work. And even the question of whether a camping conference center, how closely is that aligned to, I'm not saying they're bad places, but I'm just saying, how closely are they aligned to the core focus of what a church is supposed to be and do? That's way more disconnected than a place where there's going to be regular instruction in God's Word. I'm not saying an orphan house is the same as teaching the gospel, but he established the orphan house for a means of teaching and preaching the gospel, and so it was very closely aligned to his main purpose for ministry. Um, Ben, what do you think? What are some other reasons that it's important to consider how temptation might be a reason for us to want to expand something that we're doing? Okay, we're doing it to promote ourselves. Okay. Grace, do you have another idea on that? Wait, what sort of? No? Okay. Kim, how about you? Uh, I think it's always good to check our motivation. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, she was saying that it's good to check our motivations and see how it affects the people around us and whether the motive is to please God or please ourselves, like that kind of idea. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so if our, if our reason for not doing something is fear, or we don't see how it's possible, he says a little bit later, well, um, we'll come back to that because that's kind of the next section. But yeah, that's a good point. If, if fear is the main obstacle, then that's uh, something we need to ask God to help us with. Bob? I don't remember if he said it in the book, but I know he said it in the audio book. Uh, he asked the question, am I tempting God? Okay. Do you remember if he said that in the book? Not here in this book, but okay. I think in the in the e-book that's longer, not the abridged one, I think okay. I saw it. So. Yeah, because he said, which obviously is a good question to ask, but the way he explained it, he said, 
I don't believe I'm tempting God because tempting God is actually to put limitations on him. Sure. And I don't think that's normally how we look at it. Like, God, you can't do this. Right. So show it to me. But if you come at it from God, you can do this. Will you do it? That's that's an interesting point. Okay. Mary, did you have something a second ago? I'm sorry. No? Okay. Um, Clara, how would you go about checking your motives, do you think, if you were trying to make a big decision? I'm sorry, say that one more time. Trying to examine if it's God's will. Okay, yeah, maybe through prayer, maybe talking to another believer about it. A lot of these things, it seems like Mueller is wrestling through on his own. Perhaps he discussed it with his wife. He doesn't really talk about it a great deal. Um, I think there's value in, yes, wrestling through it with God ourselves, but I think there's also value in talking to fellow believers and getting their input on some of these things. So, um, yeah, and again, this is not like an absolute foolproof guide, but here's someone who seems to be walking closely with God, who's being open about the process that he didn't immediately say, here's this idea, I'm just going to go do it. Like, here's this process of examining why it is or isn't a good idea and all those kinds of things. And I think it's a helpful process for us to work through. Um, so, along the same lines, if... Uh, if we were to say, um, well, let me just put it this way. Do we have to have a Christian version of everything that's out there in the world? Like, do we have to have a Christian school, Christian retirement home, Christian bookstore, Christian everything? Particularly in our case, do we have to feel a need to have a, one of those? Not necessarily. Um, that was, I mean, it's interesting to watch sort of the, the peak and the decline of all of those things in the 70s. It was, you have to have a Christian version of everything in the world, and we're going to have a, sort of this, we have our version, you have your version, and we're going to do it better, right? It's interesting to watch what happened with all of that, because a lot of those things really took off for a while, and now they're really declining. Like, if you look at Christian colleges... I think when I was down at a Christian college, I want to say the enrollment was five or 6,000. I want to say it might be like 2,500 now. Uh, I think when my mom was there, it was closer to maybe seven. Um, and when you look at, for example, a lot of the churches that had uh, Christian retirement homes or assisted living facilities attached to them, most of them have sold those off, for better or for worse most of the Christian bookstores have closed. Like, so I think if our motivation is to say, well, we can just do a Christian version and do it better just because it has Christian in the name, obviously we've seen that sort of do this in the last 40 years, uh, 50 years. If, um, if we overextend ourselves, which is part of his concern, and, and say, we're going to do this, we don't have personnel to do it, we don't have finances to do it, we don't have a place to do it, but we're just going to do it, we need to be really, really, really convinced that this is what God wants us to do. So, for example, um, and, and, and consider where God's put us. So, um, if we said, for example, uh, we want to have 
a beach ministry and witness to people who are surfing on the beach? Any issues with that being our primary ministry given our location? We don't have the beach, right? Um, what do we have around us? We have an elementary school up here on the corner. We have a fire station. I'm not sure that there's a huge amount of witnessing opportunities, but I mean, there's guys who probably are there a decent part of the time. That's something that we could consider reaching out to them at. We have a Dairy Queen here that people show up to a lot during the summer. We have a lot of single family homes in the neighborhood right around us. There's a few more expensive ones across the road and also some much less expensive apartments. Um, there's a golf course down this way. There's a park. Those are just examples of things that are right around us. So if we were going to develop some sort of a ministry, it connected with this as being the hub of that ministry, it would make sense for us to consider how we could connect through one of those avenues. We don't, as far as I recall, have like an assisted living across from us like First of Troy does right next that I think they used to own. We don't have, like I said, we don't have a beach to do a beach ministry. We don't have uh, necessarily a gymnasium to do some kind of like sports outreach kind of a ministry. So we need to consider what we do and don't have, who's nearby, and what ways we can creatively use those connection points potentially to reach people. Now, the reality is, in our case as a church, I think what we are going to most necessarily need to, most particularly need to do, is to look around ourselves individually and say, what connections do I have that I individually can use to, to, to try to reach people with the gospel? Rob has a flute shop, so a lot of his customers he encounters on a regular basis. Maybe there's witnessing opportunities there. Retta, maybe you have neighbors that live near you uh, that you have an opportunity to reach out to. Bob has people that he has clients that he talks to on a regular basis that he tries to witness to. Jonathan is at a place where he has people around him in his office. Um, different ones of you who are ladies who aren't working have opportunities with neighbors or going to parks or maybe in your apartment complex or all of those sorts of things. I have two kids that I could say, all right, we're going to not sit at home. We're going to go down to a park and see what other families we might meet at the park, right? Um, part of the reason that I think considering all of those opportunities is important is because some of us live nearby to this building, and some of us live quite a distance away from this building. So if our ministry is primarily oriented around the building, then we basically have to drive here and then do something right around here. And I'm not saying we should never do that, and I'm not saying we should have no burden for the people that live right next door, but there is a sense in which it is easier to start with the connections and encounters that you already have and build from there and then say, okay, we're going to do something collectively right here around the church building, as opposed to saying, we're going to go talk to people we've never met, we're not in the habit of talking to people that we've never met, we don't know what to say to people that we've never met, and we're going to jump from, I've never met you, come to my church, follow Jesus, be a part of it. 
That is a big jump. Now, can God do it? Absolutely. God is powerful. His spirit can change hearts. But just from a practical perspective, I think we would do well to strengthen our individual ministries right where God has put us, whatever that looks like, and then build from there. Because I think in the past, sometimes what we've tried to do is we've said, well, let's start a Bible study at the church building. Okay? If you're going to have a Bible study, what do you need? You need people to come to the Bible study. And if you don't have anybody you can invite to the Bible study, what's going to happen? You're going to have a Bible study basically for church members, which is what we do already every week, which is great, but that's not really an outreach. So to the extent that something like um, Christianity Explored failed, so to speak, looking back, why might that be? Well, potentially, because we didn't have people to invite, because we didn't have relationships established with people that we felt like we could invite them to. Now, maybe you had somebody, you invited that person, that person didn't come, and I'm not saying, I'm not blaming you for that. I'm just saying, let's think through why something did or didn't work from a practical perspective. I'm not saying be pragmatic. If it works, do it. If it doesn't work, don't do it, because we have to consider a biblical philosophy of ministry. I'm just saying we need to think very clearly about why we are or aren't doing things. Same thing with something like VBS. What has changed societally in the last 40 or 50 years why VBS would have been a huge thing decades ago and why now it's not as big of a thing? Well, you have sports in the summertime. You have people taking a lot of vacations in the summertime. You have people not prioritizing church as being an important part of life. You have a suspicion of strangers. I don't want to leave my kids with a bunch of people I don't know. You have, on the other hand, people looking for uh, maybe free babysitting, but not really looking for uh, any sort of spiritual kind of benefit from it. So all of those factors, and perhaps more, sort of conspire together to make something like Vacation Bible School potentially not super effective in an area like ours, particularly if it's done year after year after year without, even, without considering all of those factors. Again, I'm not criticizing previous leadership of the church. I'm not criticizing anybody who volunteered those things and said you did a bad job. I'm just trying to help us think practically about why would something appear to have worked at one point and then it declined and now we don't do it and should we ever consider doing it again? Bob? Also, when we talk about this, I think one of the best examples that we have in this book is how much time he spent in dedicated prayer towards those things. And I think that's something that we can learn from as a church. Yeah. So if our only focus is on the activity of the ministry itself and not on who is actually accomplishing the work, which is ultimately not us, even though God uses us, if we do not pray, we should not expect to see God work. Now, are there ways to manipulate the situation and get significant results in a short period of time without God actually being behind it? Absolutely. If you do things that people like, that are trendy or that are attractive to things that they already want to do, are they potentially going to be on board with that? Sure. But that's different from God actually working in and blessing something. And that's, I think, one of the big issues with the whole church growth movement. Now, is it possible for us to be so unconcerned about numbers that we're like, we're happy, we have this group of people, we don't need any more? Yes. Is it possible to be so obsessed with numbers that we completely change the message and get all focused on the sort of marketing business side of things, like, you know, Rick Warren's a prime example of this. He said, I want to 
come up with a church that targets middle-aged men who listen to this kind of music and play golf on weekends and dress a particular way and we're going to craft everything in this particular church that we're starting to attract that specific group of people. What's the issue with that? The church is supposed to be more than middle-aged men who listen to Nickelback and play golf on weekends, right? The church is supposed to be a broad swath of people. And the more specifically targeted we are, the more effective we are at marketing, and the worse we are at doing what the church is supposed to be and do from a New Testament perspective. So, how do we then return to what God wants the focus to be? If you look at the book of Acts, to, to Bob's point, the book of Acts shows a huge emphasis on prayer. Every time persecution came up, they prayed. And not for God to take away the persecution, for God to make them more effective in the midst of it. Peter gets thrown in jail, they pray. Paul goes into a new city, he prays. There's prayer all throughout the book of Acts. And there is prayer associated with the great times of revival and awakening in American history. And to the extent that we don't see those today, I think it is in large part due to the fact that we don't pray particularly fervently or frequently. Let's keep moving here. Uh, as to outward circumstances, I've had nothing to encourage me. He said, this is one of the biggest steps I've ever taken, and I cannot go about it with too much caution, prayerfulness, and deliberation. I am in no hurry. I could wait for years before taking one step toward this thing or speaking to anyone about it. On the other hand, I would set to work tomorrow if the Lord wanted me to. I served Satan in my younger years, and I desire now to serve God with all my might during the remaining days of my earthly pilgrimage. So here's my question. What's, what must not pressure us into making decisions apart from God's will? I mean, this is going to factor into some of the conversation we have in the business meeting just briefly a little bit later today. If we say it's been X amount of time and we haven't made a decision on what to do about the pews, what could pressure us into making a decision and spending lots of money apart from God's will? Our own desires, such as? Okay, we want our building to look like so-and-so's building because then we can feel good about ourselves and people won't think badly of us and kind of like, and I don't know what your experience was growing up, but kind of like sort of this idea of if you're the kid who shows up with holes in his shoes, you're potentially going to get made fun of and so you don't want that, so maybe you go out and buy something you can't afford just because you don't want to be treated a particular way. So if that's our motivation, that's a problem, right? Okay? Um, Bob, can you go talk to the fellow that just walked in? So, yeah. um, Jonathan? Here would be my pushback or question. Is this the tabernacle? No, I know what you're saying, but again, it's reflecting on God. 
yeah, so uh, to the ex to the extent that it is, um, here's the thing I'm trying to get at. To the extent that something is dirty and we don't take care of it, and we're being lazy, absolutely, I would agree with you. To the extent that something is older or worn, um, our motivation needs to be more than just we want a new thing or a different thing, is what I'm trying to say. And I'm not saying you're disagreeing with that. I'm just, I'm just trying to think through, like, um, uh, one of the other things that we've mentioned is, well, we want it to look nice because potentially it will be attractive to visitors, right? Which then goes back to the question of, are we having visitors? Because if the goal is to attract visitors, we might say, well, we need it to look nice so visitors will come. And the reason that most visitors come is not because something looks a particular way, but because they know somebody part of the church. Or they're trying to find a church and they need uh, information about something or other, and so they show up just to see what's going on. Um, so there are um, just a variety of factors to think about. My, my point is just to say, we can have a sense of, I want things to look this way, because of how it makes me feel or how it makes me look, and those, I think, are dangerous motivations for us when doing God's work. Because we start to assume things that potentially aren't true and make decisions uh, just for, for shallow reasons. Now, is there potentially a degree of, I don't know if laziness is the right word or lack of ambition or something along those lines, can, can, can we be too apathetic about all of those things? Absolutely, right? So I'm just saying not avoiding making changes whatsoever, but also not making them just for shallow superficial reasons. That's, that's the main point that I'm trying to make. So his point is, I need to be really convinced this is what God wants me to do, and if I'm not convinced, I am willing to wait a really long time and keep praying about it until I am convinced as opposed to just doing it because I feel like I've got to make a decision on it. So let's use the example of building the orphan house and see what some of the things are that he says. He says, would I be going beyond my spiritual capabilities? His answer was, if God helps me, no. Okay? Would I be going beyond my physical and mental strength? Potentially, but if I get people to help me, I think I can do it. If the present state of the scriptural knowledge institution was to be the limit to my work, I would lay it aside at once, but the fact that we have had more expenses and less money is not necessarily a reason to abandon the idea. Is it like tempting... Oh, it actually is here. I missed it. Is it like tempting God to think of building another orphan house? Tempting God means to limit God and his attributes. I do not wish to limit his power or his willingness. So he said no. How will I get the money? This is a weighty objection, but I have no hope on my own, but I'm not discouraged spiritually. God has the power to give me the 35,000 pounds I will need and more. Suppose I succeed. How can I provide for 700 more orphans? Naturally, I am going too far. Spiritually, I see no difficulty at all. And he's got the track record of God having provided up to this point to help him in this. Suppose I obtain this large sum. Suppose I can provide for them during my lifetime. What about when I'm dead and gone? Who's going to keep the work going? Well, I can pass the work on to someone else. Would building another orphan house cause me to be lifted up in pride? Well, 
this is danger even if I was not called to increase this ministry. What God has already done is sufficient basis for me to be tempted to pride, so God doing more of it is not necessarily going to be more of a temptation to pride, but a continued opportunity to evaluate these things. Reasons to establish one, many applications for admission, the moral state of the poor houses, the children are basically drawn into immorality by the people who are running them who aren't Christians. I'm encouraged, thirdly, by God's great help. My experience and capabilities have grown with the work. The spiritual benefit of more orphans is a reason why I feel called to go forward. I cannot be satisfied with anything less than the orphan's souls being one for the Lord. My greatest desire is to show forth God's glory and His readiness to hear prayer. I am peaceful and happy in the prospect of enlarging the work. So, therefore, on the ground of the objections answered in these eight reasons for enlarging the work, I have come to the conclusion that it is God's will I should serve Him by enlarging this work. How does this approach to pros and cons compare or contrast to maybe the approach you, or you might have had for pros and cons of a major decision? Let me just answer that for myself. I think that it is easy to look at it very matter-of-factly and materialistically and not consider the greater spiritual reasons for doing a particular thing. Jonathan? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, things like how will this help me grow spiritually is at least as weighty of a question as can I afford it. But we tend to only just suck on the can I afford it and what will people think and all those sorts of things and not just the what will this accomplish spiritually and that's something we should seriously consider. We'll keep moving because we're almost time is almost up. The Lord has given me precious proof that he is delighted when we expect great things from him. I've received 3,000 pounds this evening, the largest donation I've ever had. My joy in God on account of these, this donation cannot be described. Was Mueller right to be encouraged to proceed based on this circumstance? Why or why not? He gets 3,000 pounds. He needs 35,000 pounds. So it's something like 10% of the a little under 10%. Yes. But it is a significant amount. Yeah. And it comes shortly after struggling Okay. That I think is a really important point. If we look to circumstances to guide us alone, without prayer, without consideration of biblical principles, without advice from godly counselors, if we start with circumstances, we are very prone to misinterpreting them. If we having done all of this other work, what does God say about the right and wrong of it? What do godly counselors say about the right and wrong of it? Spending a significant amount of time in prayer about it. Then we say, now this circumstance, uh, here I've established this could be a very good thing. Now let's see if God continues to make it possible for it to happen right now, because again, it could be he wants to do it 10 years down the road, not right this second. Um, that's when I think we need to start looking at circumstances. Sometimes we start with circumstances and we say, should I do this? Well, it looks really hard. Well, we should start with, does God say it's a good thing to do? Has he equipped me to do it? Those sorts of things, as opposed to, will it be really hard? 
Because if we start with, will it would be really hard, we'll almost never do anything, right? But if we start with, God says we should do this, God will sustain me in this, I've prayed and God has helped me to be convinced of these things, other godly people have said, yes, this is a good idea, even though it may not be easy, and then we come to a place where it says, this will be hard, then we're much more prepared to get over that obstacle, or conversely, something that helps accomplish the goal, see it as further confirmation, as opposed to starting with it and saying, I have no idea what to make of this. Do I do it? Do I not do it? I don't know. We're not supposed to read tea leaves or look at animal insides or all those sorts of things to figure out the future. But God does use circumstances to narrow our choices once we have looked at biblical principles, sought godly advice, and spent time in prayer. Bob? It seems to, when we were talking about this um, as a family, we started off small, I want to serve God, and then over time, that responsibility has increased, his faith has increased, God's glory has increased, and so I think that's an important aspect to consider, is he sought to be faithful, and we have the principle of he who is faithful with little will be given much. So, yeah. I think there's a... Like a building. Yeah. Okay, that's a good point. Last thing here, and we'll kind of wrap up with this, and I'll just kind of leave it as a rhetorical question. He says, when God overcomes our difficulties for us, we have the assurance that we are engaged in his work and not our own. So my question for us to consider, maybe even during this week, is what does it look like in our lives, God overcoming our difficulties for us? Let's close in prayer, and uh, we'll head into the service. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these uh, uh, circumstances in the life of Mueller and how you continue to work in his life. We pray that you would bless us as we seek your will and, and faithfully serve you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.